How you guys doing? So I'm going to open up with a with a story, and uh, I, I hope this story brings insight into some very key little aphorisms, if you will, that I I tend to live by. I, there has been a a, a little joke um, meme collection that's gone around uh, Door of Hope for the for years called Josh White out of context. And being a primarily uh, extemporaneous preacher, those statements out of context are quite amazing where often I have no idea what the context is and not even sure that I actually said the things that I'm told I said, but then I test them and they're like, oh yes, you did say that. <laughs> like, just because I have a gold tooth doesn't mean I'm a Unitarian. No idea why I said it, where it came from. <laughs> so, uh, Many things like that. So you might have the privilege of some of those today as well. Um, I'm actually in the process of writing my first book uh, for an imprint of Penguin um, uh, called Waterbrook. Uh, sadly, my editor just uh, contacted me the other day because my first draft is supposedly due this month. And uh, he's like, how's, it, how's the book coming? And I was like, I go, it's been, it's been a real creative season. Um, <laughs> Every time I, I work on the book, uh, I uh, produce an unbelievable electronic dance track. And I don't, <laughs> I don't know what that means, other than it might mean I lose my book deal. So if the book never comes out, I'm going to at least give you a, a portion that's finished. Uh, and the book actually will come out. And it's called The Good Death. And it's an exploration of the seven statements from the cross. Uh, and, uh, but done through kind of an uh, Augustine's confessions with more of a lowbrow approach of uh, Josh White's confessions and the crazy mixture of life uh, that we all find ourselves in and how the cross is the only thing that brings equilibrium uh, to our existence. So I'm going to share a story from my childhood. The, the pastor's wife uh, was before me uh, at the Hammond C3, and C3 versus the B3. The C3 is the Hammond organ that had a, a front cover so that a woman could sit behind it with a dress on and nobody would be able to look up her skirt. Uh, and this was good uh, with this woman. Um, <laughs> permed silver hair, polyester dress uh, that clung tight to her full figure. Uh, short fingers working the two-tiered keyboard as her orthopedic shoes stomped out the bass notes. The sincerity of the performance, uh, somberness of the moment, and the general lack of aesthetic sensibility created a strange and hypnotic acceptance of her choppy rendition of Horatio Spafford's It Is Well. I, the interloper, sat next to my mom in that grief-saturated sanctuary filled with tears and the hues of orange and amber haze from the stained glass windows common to small churches built across America in the 50s and 60s. My 12-year-old hands were balmy as I anxiously looked to the center stage where the closed casket containing the body of a teenage boy whom I had never met rested. Now, it's cringeworthy to confess that my nervousness was not over the death, for I literally had never experienced death. I hadn't ever been to a funeral. Um, I was nervous because in the front row sat a series of what I would only regard as a bevy of beauties 
that were pulled directly from a John Hughes film. It was a, it was a whole row of cheerleaders because the boy that had died was a high school football star. And the reason that my mom and I were there is because I had just sang for the first time ever in front of a group of people uh, with my mom, a duet in church. Uh, and and uh, we sang, of course, to an accompaniment tape, uh, classic to the 80s. You remember those special offering performances? Uh, and my mom, she, she loved, she still loves. I mean, she was meant for karaoke. She loves accompaniment tapes. She, I remember, I mean, I was subjected to accompaniment tapes for, you know, El Shaddai, Father's Eyes, a whole series of Evie songs. Uh, yeah, I, I, I'm pretty sure, you know, that we, there was some, uh, there, I, I could have listed another 66 uh, Christian artists that I was subjected to at Jesus Northwest, which was a festival, you know, like Brian Duncan, Sheila E. I got her autograph on a shirt. I don't even know what she's saying. I don't even remember what she looks like. Um, but I wish I had the t-shirt still, especially after that movie last night. But there my mom and I were, the father had asked us to sing because he was deeply moved by our performance. And I sat there overwhelmed uh, by this opportunity to bring uh, the healing song of Friends by Michael W. Smith. This came after the pastor's eulogy from what I can remember was filled with pedestrian theology, the usual pithy phrases thrown out against the absurdity of the loss. <laughs> Things like, he was a kind young man, a good friend and an even better son. The Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. He's in a better place now. All, all the feeble attempts to create some sort of adequate theodicy. Why do we suffer? And the answer is, is that we don't know, but we believe Jesus is good and with us in the midst of it. But as the turgid meandering continued, I was struck even at that age at the, at the reality that these kids would probably go back to what they were doing that took this young man's life, which was a kid being smashed drunk uh, after, a, after a, a, a game at the party, driving home and crashing into a tree where one is instantly taken and the other one, I'm sure, psychologically scarred for the rest of his life. And then I am there to bring the healing touch. Here we are, 1983 Christian mega hit, Friends. The poster child of 80s American evangelical superstardom, Michael W. Smith, also known as Smitty by his more serious fans. It is worth noting that I watched this man perform in 1989 at Jesus Northwest. I was no longer walking uh, as even a professed Christian because I didn't know what grace was and I never was a Christian. Uh, but I did find this one girl in youth group super hot. And my mom said, I think it'd be good for you to go back to church. And I said, um, and go to this thing, Jesus Northwest, uh, because you desperately need faith because she was really worried about me. And I'm like, yeah, I'll go. Is Amy gonna be there? She's like, she is. I'm like, I will definitely go. <laughs> Before leaving on that amazing youth excursion, I took a hit of acid. Um, and you know what was weird is uh, within 45 minutes, uh, my whole mode of perception had been completely transformed. The Christian Music Festival turned into something more akin to a, to a carnival filled with demonstrative outbursts of spiritual and patriotic zeal, both in sound and in sight, where I was struck with a strange case of holy laughter um, <laughs> that plagued my whole day, and I'm positive destroyed 
the love interest of that moment. <laughs> but that's, a, that's another story. So the accompaniment tape began, and I stood next to my mom, and petrified but determined, mic in my hand, I had the lead, her, the harmony, my voice was a silky high tenor. So sad, I keep losing like an octave, like every year. It just gets lower and lower. Uh, and I can sing so high, like I can sing with Journey perfectly. I could sing with any woman on the radio perfectly uh, before, before the, the transformation. So this was in the, in the golden years of prepubescent vocals, you know. And, and, and my voice was silky high tenor, and it began with great delicacy, the opening lines. You know the, song, you know the lines. I'm not going to sing it because I just, I can't. I might sing the chorus for you. Uh, and I looked up with growing confidence because I'm not going to lie. I felt pretty good that day especially about my parents. I, I, uh, I just received my first perm. Um, isn't it weird that's the only thing that has not come back from the 80s? Uh, I, that's why I'm growing my hair out. I'm about to bring it back. So what my grandpa did when he hit 50, I'm 48, so I got a couple more years, I told Darcy. It's, it's, it's going to return with me. Um, <laughs> I think it'll be too much with the gold tooth. Um, <laughs> I, I, it's funny, I got a perm because I wanted to look like Prince because I loved Purple Rain, but instead I looked like Kirk Cameron from Growing Pains. <laughs> and, and I had just gotten, you know, the pastel, soft pink button-up shirt, bugle boy pants and suspenders. I was wearing uh, little deck shoes. And I hit that pre-chorus and I looked up and there was the bevy of beauties emotionally unhinged before me. This is what Luther called the power of the prophets. I, in that moment, a conduit of melody and word, had broke open the heavens and the deep with which the world within that room was suddenly flooded with weeping. And at the chorus landed, friends of friends forever, the Lord's the Lord of them. Yes, I remember the overwhelming sensation as I looked out at the melancholy eyes and moist cheeks of those magical creatures in the front row. <laughs> And they all radiated such longing in that moment. Tethered together, I believed my prepubescent voice had indeed become a spiritual guide through the dark night of the soul. <laughs> and like Kate Bush with arms wrapped around Peter Gabriel singing into his ear, don't give up. You know, it's never been easy. You know that song? Yes, this is what I wanted to do with my life. My calling had come. I knew I had in the words of the great Barry Manilow who came from a parallel universe to Michael W. Smith, <laughs> written the songs that makes the whole world sing. I write the songs of love and special things. I write the songs that make young girls cry. Now, one may be disturbed that something so macabre could be remembered so fondly, but at the time it never occurred to me that the stares, the tears, the emotion was not for me, but the unseen boy who lay in the casket behind me. And the song may have been a catalyst, but not the cause. And how mysterious that an event can be experienced so differently, but still shared nonetheless. That their grief, even if it was misunderstood, gave me, a broken child who had nothing but a lot of heartache as a kid, cruel stepdads, an absent father, a mom of three working three jobs to provide for us boys, sexually abused, teased endlessly, in this moment, I found purpose. 
And here I had found that hope in my song, even if it wasn't the source of the tears, gave them a moment of comfort and space to release them. And for that, I thank Jesus and I thank Smitty. You see, I want us to understand that all around us in every situation, what I have seen as I came to Christ at 27 years old, that life, as I look back upon my history, and just so you know, this story actually came out of me being unwilling, my book actually was birthed out of me being unwilling to talk about my childhood with my therapist. Yes, I go to a therapist because when you lead a church of 1,500 in a city like Portland, Oregon, you will realize that you can't do it unless you are crazy and you can't do it without becoming crazy and you desperately need help and Jesus is so good to provide it in a multitude of ways. It's very difficult when you're a lead pastor to know who is safe to talk with about the brokenness of the human heart. And I try my best to be as confessional as possible as a communicator, as honest as possible about my mixture. And this story reeks of mixture. (laughs) Don't think I'm not aware of the outrageousness of discovering a desire to be a singer and feeling the, the pride of being able to produce Uh, an emotional response in a moment of deep tragedy. But the longing of the human heart is to belong, to belong to something bigger than ourselves. If anything has been discovered through COVID, that it is not good that man be alone, that we need one another, that we desperately need one another, and that everything we do together seems to continually be this thing called mixture. I like to say that, that it doesn't matter if I am if I am uh, preaching the most powerful, spirit-filled message I've ever given where there is people wrapped with attention and Jesus seems to be moving in spite of the weirdness of my temperament. Uh, It doesn't matter what's happening. If people come forward in in an emotional response and in a deep, real, honest repentance and conviction that I need Christ, there's still mixture. There's still the Josh in the back of the spirit saying, but Lord, do they really like me? Are these pants too snug? (laughs) I I love the story today of the email of just, it seems like you really gained weight. Your face is like a little, a little, a little, what is it? A a chubby angel or a cherubic? I'm like, I've gotten so many emails like that. Everybody has an opinion about something. And this is the mixture, but if we could see through the mixture, we would begin to find the little graces that intersect with our lives every day, every single day. My therapist was saying, Josh, you've got to talk about your childhood because you can't escape it. And and I took this position when I first got saved that if anyone be in Christ, they are a new creation. In fact, I would be the first to preach before I had a mental breakdown in 2010. If you're struggling with depression or anxiety, it's because... It's because there's unconfessed sin. It's because, it's because you're not, you don't know how to trust Jesus. I was harsh. I had, a, I had a lack of grace. I thought I was Keith Green. I just wanted, I got so radically saved. I just, I thought, how could anyone not be 100% sold out for Jesus in everything that they do? And then I experienced my own dark night of the soul. And what the Lord taught me through that season was that Oh my gosh, the glitches and the brokenness in my own disposition are so tremendous that how could I ever live in a position where all I do is beat the sheep? The shepherd lays down his life for them. 
And so it is that I end up in this counselor's office and he's trying to get me to talk about my brokenness and the glitches that I can't escape. Like, just because I got saved doesn't mean that it's going to change the fact that I didn't grow up with a father. It's like getting saved with one arm. You don't grow a new one. (laughs) And that glitch is a real glitch and it affects the way that I communicate. It affects the way that I think and process reality. And and, and this counselor was like, you gotta talk about these things. You gotta talk about your past. And so the book actually was birthed out of my unwillingness to talk about it. And he said, why don't you try writing the stories? And then I thought, that's actually kind of fun because I could detach myself in a way and view myself as a character in, in in a memoir when I realized life is actually this crazy. I thought that last night watching the movie when I thought that the last major performance I played with my old band Telecast was with Striper in Norway. I'm like, the world is a small place. (laughs) I watched them perform To Hell with the Devil acapella in a room full of beautiful Scandinavians eating pancakes. Doesn't get weirder than that. (laughs) And and, and as I began, it's funny, my, 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 Therapist said, you've got, to, you've got to talk, you've got to write it down. And I'm like, can't we just talk about infinite jest? I'm really fast. We're not going to talk about infinite jest. I'm like, okay. He, he gave a rule. He's like, you can talk about whatever you want for 15 minutes, and then we're going to do some heart work. And this exploration has brought me to a series of realities that have helped shape the ministry at Door of Hope. And honestly, Mockingbird has been very key in a reshaping of how I approach ministry in a city like Portland. And I wanna just share just a few thoughts with you about how we can find little graces, um, how we can actually function in a world that is so unbelievably polarized right now. That it's, it, it, everything that we are experiencing currently is an us against them sort of mentality. And it's happened in the church. I have a church filled with millennials whose parents got excited that their kids got saved and started coming to church. And so they decided to come to Door of Hope. Well, I didn't know, you know, six years ago that the parents were probably conservative and I'm in Portland. So every Christian in Portland that's below the age of 30 is a Marxist and they just don't know it. (laughs) I mean, this is the reality. I mean, they don't know that everything they say sounds like a, some quote from Foucault without eloquence. Um, <laughs> and their parents don't understand that everything that they are saying sounds like McCarthyism all over again. And so, so I'm like, you know, history does repeat itself, and we are terrible historians. But, uh, and, and there's now wars within the, in the pews between parents and kids who don't want to talk to each other because the parents are convinced that their kids are communists and the kids are convinced that their parents are Nazis. And I'm like, I promise you that if your kid voted for Bernie Sanders doesn't mean that they're a communist. And I promise your mom and dad voting for Trump does not make them a Nazi. You've probably actually never met a real communist or a real Nazi because you don't even know what you believe because all we know is all there is. And that actually creates this deep problem is that we think we have answers. And the only thing we know for sure is that Jesus said, pick up your cross and follow me. He didn't even tell us where he's going. (laughs) Which tells me that it doesn't matter where I'm going as long as I'm following him. And what this tells me is this first principle, and my story should have explained that as it was told in a very tongue-in-cheek fashion. Life is mixture. Everything you do, even in the power of the Spirit, is mixture. 
And if we remember that, we would remember Eugene Peterson's great, great retelling of Psalm 14, where he said, God looks down from heaven to see if there is any man, any woman who isn't stupid. And he comes up with a string of zeros. It's a great translation. <laughs> that you are not a bigger failure than God already knows that you are. And that's good news, actually. It's what David uh, and John and Paul call low anthropology. And I don't know if that's original to the Zals. It seems like it is, but I'm borrowing it regularly because I am surrounded by the horror of a city that was, that was once beautiful. I knew it was a David Lynch film. Now it is a David Lynch film. It, I mean, it's it like the, 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 the beautiful exterior, everything that now Portlandia is a nightmare. It's a horror show because the joke of Portland is that it actually is that much of a caricature of itself. Uh, and it's, it's convinced in it, all of its arrogance and progressiveness that it truly knows what's going on. Like, literally, I told people, I'm coming to Texas, and like, why would you ever go there? They're crazy, they, wear, they don't wear masks. And I'm like, you're crazy. You're stinking crazy. You're vaccinated and you're wearing three masks, a face shield, eyeglasses, and rubber gloves. That's crazy. <laughs> And that really is a real thing. I just saw that the other day at Fred Meyer and I actually got angry and then I was like, you love them, Jesus, so much. I am mixture right now. It's like me wanting to save the guy that I tried to run over on the way to church because I hate bicycles. Uh, everything is mixture, number one. Number two, life is terminal, if I could borrow from Beekner. Why are we so afraid of the thing that we can't escape? The denial of death is one of the greatest drives of Western civilization, and it speaks from a, from a humanist manifesto that declares that the only thing that is truly eternal is the spirit of man while he is alive. There is nothing beyond the material, nothing beyond the physical, nothing beyond what can be experienced with the senses, when we know that's not true. If we actually believe that death has been defeated, why are we so terrified? And here's the real truth about Portland. Portland is no longer even afraid. There are people that are truly terrified because the media has fed upon people's fear. But the fact is, is that even Christians have bought into this idea. It's a bad witness to the city to not, you know, play into its rules. And I'm like, when did bad witness, when did witness become uh, synonymous with offending? It's so weird. I mean, if we would just learn to be offensive for the right things, what's really offensive is showing people grace. Uh, what's really offensive is being a conduit of love and refusing to be drawn into the culture wars and the political wars and saying, people ask me, like, are you political? I literally, I'm like, I am with Jacques Ellul 100%. I'm like, no. What about Romans 13? What about the call to be a good citizen? I'm like, I will be a good citizen, I will vote, I will pay my taxes, but only for the purpose of maintaining my ability to be a witness. But it does not matter what the political system is or what the structure is or who's in power because the kingdoms of men come and go. America is not the new Jerusalem. <laughs> and I know I'm in Texas, this is a dangerous statement. I wanted to follow that up if I got booze, I was gonna quickly say Texas is definitely the new Jerusalem. <laughs> <laughs> it's my new Jerusalem. <laughs> Darcy's like, I'm ready to move here. 
But this reality that life is terminal should be, be continually at the, at the back of our mind that the, the key to truly experiencing life is by continually entering into the good death. What does Robert Farrar Capone say? It was one of my favorite quotes uh, from his book on the parables when he says, he says, the only thing that you have to bring to Jesus is your dead body. And the good news is, is that Jesus seems to be in the habit of bringing dead things to life. I love that. It's so poetic, so beautiful, but so true. Life is terminal. Third, law is always seductive. Our desire to create rules for ourselves to ease the nagging voice of conscience is a perpetual propensity of the human heart that we have to understand. I am terrified at what I am seeing in the church in Portland right now. If I could speak, I believe that God has given me a, a, a particular insight, a, a warning, if you will. Maybe it's because I didn't come to faith until I was 27. And I remember when I got signed to tooth and nail and just thrown into the deep end of the Christian music market, all of a sudden I have a hit song on the radio and I hear, I hear our song in Chicago between a Carmen tune and, and a, I think it was like a it was like a newsboys song, and I didn't know whether to cry or be excited because all I ever wanted to be was Radiohead, and now I'm in the Christian music market. But really, for me, my desire was not to be a rock star anymore. I just wanted to, I knew the Christian music market was not gonna be cool. <laughs> I, I, wasn't, I didn't go in fooled by anything. I didn't think I was gonna change taste in radio. Tom York was gonna be like, have you heard this Christian band? These guys are legit. <laughs> That was never gonna happen because I met him and he was a jerk. Um, eh, he really was, hurt my feelings deeply. I, I told him it was the best, the Benz was the best record I'd ever heard. And he literally looked at me like this and he goes, and turned around and walked away. And that's why I refused to pray for him. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> but I, I think law is deeply seductive in this, is that I see this new pattern, this emerging. When I, when I got saved, the emergent movement was just coming out. And the emergent movement was all about poking, 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 poking at foundations. Is this actually necessary? Let's ask tons of questions and give no answers. That's so helpful. <laughs> and, and I was like a new believer, and I got so right. I'm like, I just need someone to tell me what to do. Like, point me to Jesus. Like, I don't... I don't need a bunch of navel-gazing speculation. You guys don't seem to believe in anything. What's the deal? I actually thought it was like a cult when I first discovered it, and maybe it was on some levels. But I think that there is a remnant that is actually rising up again within urban settings, which is the deep desire to make Jesus somehow palatable for modern sensibilities. Like, we can have fun. I love, I, what I love about David and and John and the whole Mockingbird crew is their ability to actually look at culture. And they're not trying to be cultural experts because listen, the world will always do the world better. And we aren't called to exegete the world. We are called to exegete the cross. And every book that I've ever read by any Christian academic thinker on culture, Christ and whether it's Niebuhr or D.A. Carson, Christ and culture re-examined or the multitude, these are the lamest old dudes <laughs> with no cultural insight whatsoever. Why would I listen to them about, about what's happening in pop culture? It's like that horrible interview with Jack Kerouac and an expert from Stanford who is gonna tell Jack Kerouac about the beat culture. And he was like this stiff old guy and Kerouac's just drunk and he's just like, what are you talking about? Why are you even talking? Uh, and I think that that's often, it's like Christians often come across like aliens when we try to tell 
ourselves about what the world is doing and what's the mindset behind that reality. It's just, it's not, it's dishonest. Let's be okay with the fact that we're weird. Like you don't, you can't make the gospel sensible for modern, for modern people. It, it, it's foolishness. You can't, if you try to diminish, like, well, if we don't talk about demons, if we could get rid of, you know, these kind of embarrassing aspects, you know, then they'll for sure believe that there was a single person who actually somehow dealt with all of the brokenness of humanity in one singular moment in history that reaches forward and backward and upward and downward like the great glass elevator in Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. That makes sense, a ton of sense to, to, to non-believers. No, it does not. That's why the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. And when the, Jesus is lifted up, he mysteriously draws people to himself and he doesn't need us to help him be cool. I love that. Jesus doesn't need to be made famous. He is famous. And I believe that with all of my heart. And the thing is, is that the name of Jesus is what creates discomfort, can suck the air out of a room faster than anything else because there is no other name under heaven by which one can be saved. And we cannot collapse on that. And what I see right now is a movement toward trying to create, there's a massive movement toward monastic practices right now. Uh, in my city, it's very popular. It's kind of like monasticism for evangelical, for like tired evangelicals who want to do church different than their parents. And I think that, and I'm not saying there's anything wrong with spiritual disciplines, but if you think that the primary goal of the church is how you can grow in your own personal knowledge and, and strength, uh, if that's the central theme of why you are going to church, you're missing the point. Luther said, I distrust solitude <laughs> because solitude is the devil's playground. If the essence of the gospel is a restoration of relationship in three directions, why the heck are we trying to get alone? Why would you trust, trust the desert fathers? I don't trust anybody that lives in an ivory tower, any pastor that doesn't spend time with their people. That, that's problematic. You know it's problematic when the stories that your pastor tells are from, from 20 years ago, which is what I did tonight, the first thing. <laughs> because I know how easy it is to isolate myself. It's hard to be hurt again and again. It's hard to have people write hard emails, but Jesus continued to take risks knowing that his heart would be broken. As Lul said, our responsibility is to be a witness, a signpost to the truth of who Jesus is and the accomplishment of the gospel, which means that we are to be sheep amongst wolves. And the reason that we are sheep, he may be the good shepherd, but the only reason the shepherd protects the flock is so that he can eventually sacrifice them. And we are protected that we might be sacrificed, that we are to be poured out, that we are not to resist our enemies or to avoid the world, but we are to be a witness in it. The law is seductive because it is our way of escaping the cross, which means that we need to understand that grace is unfair. And that is my favorite thing that Paul Zoll says in his book. It's the most powerful statement because it's the reason that Christians got so mad when Ted Bundy said yes to Jesus right before he was executed. We were like, there is no way, I remember my mom, there is no way that monster is gonna be in heaven. And I'm like, but understandably so, he killed lots of people. But that's how crazy the gospel is. It's not about the brotherhood of man and peace on earth and the preparation, like we get to make the world better so Jesus will come back. Isn't that what the church seems to be getting into bed with right now? And it's not okay. It's not that we shouldn't care about social issues. It's not that we shouldn't be engaged in them. But what we need to be looking for is how do we continually find the, these pinpoints where the little graces 
of God's presence shows up in this powerful way where, because the thing is, is that people are desperately hurting. My friend Anna Blair took her life two weeks ago. She came to faith in my office. She really met Jesus. I mean, really met him, engaged in worship, but she was, she was bipolar. And she wasn't taking her medication and she had a daughter out of wedlock and she left her daughter because she was overwhelmed by that and went to Alaska. And I didn't pursue her. I didn't press in and, and, and pursue her into the dark. And when she came back, I tried to get her to meet with me. She met with me one time and she said, I don't believe that people love me. And I don't believe that Jesus really loves me. How could he love me? And I said, Anna, it's not true. Just come back. And I, I knew that day that we needed to pursue her more, but I didn't. And I'm not responsible for the salvation of souls, but we are called to be the conduits of the grace of Christ. And grace is unfair. It pursues people into the dark. When my dad said to me, I said, Dad, do you believe in hell? And he said, of course I believe in hell. He's, Al White is a crazy person. Much of my book is about him. He's, he's a 70-year-old curmudgeon who lives off the grid in Alaska on a rest. He literally has been in ICU like 20 times uh, in the last like three years. Uh, blood transfusions. He drinks two jugs of vodka a day. Um, but he's, Jesus won't let him die because he's still pursuing him into the dark. And I said, Dad, do you believe in, do you believe in hell? And through his little, little breathing tube while he's smoking a cigarette, super safe, because um, he really cares about me. <laughs> he goes, yeah, I believe in hell. And I'm like, I'm like, why? Why do you believe in hell? He goes, because I know so many people that should go there. <laughs> it's a really honest answer. And I go, I go, what about you? And he goes, I'm a good person, Joshua. And I said, I'm like, no, you're not, Dad and neither am I. And Jesus is good, and hell is a place where a relationship doesn't exist, and look at, you've already created it for yourself right here. You're alone, and I'm here to tell you that God doesn't want you to be alone. And you didn't need me to tell you the gospel over the phone, you needed me to fly to Alaska and walk into your stinking apartment where you haven't bathed in three months, and there is nastiness that made me gag like the whole time I'm there, I felt like I couldn't breathe, suffocating. Alaska is suffocating. It was like black, the darkness of, I lived there for a year. It's, it's beautiful, but man, the winter is horrible. It is hell. Um, and it was cold, and I'm stuck in this little trailer with just chain smoking and mold, and my dad dying before my eyes. And he says, I can't give up my life. I'm not gonna surrender to, I know what he wants from me. He said that about God. I know what he wants, and he wants me to surrender. And I'm not, I'm like, Dad, you have nothing even to give him anymore. He's like, what are you worried about? I, you worried he's gonna ask you to stop drinking? I don't think he wants you to stop drinking. I'm positive that would kill you immediately. You keep drinking your alcohol. He is not interested in your cigarettes or your vodka. What he wants is you. And that is why grace is unfair, because grace says of Al White, which we all have him in us, because everything's mixture, is that on our worst day, he's crazy about us. And that is the revolutionary reality that has brought me to not only the reality that the grace is unfair, but the cross alone is our freedom. The world is talking about freedom, but all it brings is enslavement. It's calling for justice, but it is a justice that leads to bitterness. Look at the rage. Nobody's satisfied with Derek Chauvin's sentence. He was our scapegoat. 
as Rene Girard said, the universe is full of scapegoats. It goes all the way back to that primordial call in the garden in which the man said, it wasn't me, it was the woman you gave me. It, it wasn't, wasn't me, it was the serpent who deceived me. We are constantly pointing the finger, it's their fault, but we cannot buy into the victimization uh, culture phenomenon. We need to understand that Jesus did die for both the victim and the victimizer, and that on the cross, he is both the judge and the judge in our place, and that God's love is elective, which means he chooses to love sinners in their sin. That's the beauty of the grace. The cross is for freedom, which means that we die to the lie of what God never intended for us. The cross is not something you climb. It is something you die on again and again and again. We don't need ladder theology. The ladder happens once in the scripture, Jacob's ladder. But when Jesus reinterprets that vision in John at the end of chapter one, what he said, I, you will see greater things than this for you see angels ascending and descending upon the son of man. He is the ladder. He alone is access. He alone is restoration of real relationship. The spirit is power. We need the Holy Spirit. If everything is mixture, if life is terminal, if law is seductive, if grace is unfair, if the cross is freedom, what the cross brings is the freedom of a spirit-filled life because we are like lamps without oil and a lamp without oil may be a lamp, but it cannot function like a lamp. We have to have the spirit of God. And the spirit of God is not about bringing the sensational realities of signs and wonders. He can do that if he wants to, he's sovereign. But the spirit is not a force to be wielded. He is someone to be surrendered to. And as we yield to the spirit, what it means to be spirit filled is not to get more of the Holy Spirit. It's about the spirit having more of us. And as he gets a hold of us, what he does is he begins to point us and the world through us to Jesus. I always say, we are called to test the spirits. The church doesn't do a good job on testing the spirits either because I don't care if the miraculous happens. If it doesn't point us to Jesus, it's problematic. And here we see grace is unfair and the cross is freedom by which the spirit can bring power into our lives. And the final thing that I want to leave you with is just simply this. Everything in life is wrapped up in three words for us as believers. Jesus is Lord. Sin leaves the body. Salvation enters the soul and witness is all communicated through the mouth. And the world needs to see us be the hands and feet of Christ, but they need to hear his name and they need to see his lordship over our lives. And that can only happen in grace. And the good news is you're gonna fall and you're gonna fail and you're gonna blow it and you're gonna make a mess and you're gonna swear on the way to church and you're gonna get mad at your kids and you're gonna be like, who will save me from this body of death? And what it should bring us back to again and again is the truth of the gospel where we can see like in the story that I shared in the beginning, that God was even at work there. Little graces were happening. Misunderstanding was actually a place where Jesus was weaving the dissonant notes of existence into his beautiful song. The redemption of mankind comes through the surrender of the church to the lordship of Jesus that he might make himself known through us, his people. What a beautiful privilege it is in our brokenness and all of our stupidity, we the string of zeros as the very means by which Jesus says, I will seek and save that which is lost. What a powerful truth. My prayer is that you would begin to see with a sacramental cast, allows you to see God's hand 
the little ways in which he is showing up because joy is contagious. And I promise you, he's after our, our joy and he wants us to be a reflection of peace in the midst of the storm, rest in the midst of restlessness. Because when we lift Jesus up, there is something attractive about it. I promise you, Portland, Door of Hope, why are people still getting saved at Door of Hope? It's not because I'm a persuasive communicator. It's because we believe that if Jesus is lifted up, he's gonna save people, because he said it. And if he said it, as I've heard said by many, many preachers, that settles it. So may Jesus be your peace, your rest. May he be your Lord. Amen? Amen. God bless you guys.